I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People. This episode's guest is a remarkable reporter named Dion Searcy. From 2014 to 2015, Dion covered the U.S. economy for the New York Times. She was living in Brooklyn with her husband and three kids at the time. Prior to this position, she was an investigative reporter and national legal correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. In the fall of 2015, she traded her life in New York for a position in Dakar, Senegal as the West and Central Africa Bureau Chief of the New York Times. This beat included approximately 25 countries, from the Sahara to the Congo River. In 2014, Boko Haram kidnapped 250 girls in Nigeria. This event inspired the Bring Back Our Girls International campaign. Dion went to northeastern Nigeria and Cameroon to investigate the conversion of girls to suicide bombers, battles between the Nigerian army and Shiites, and Boko Haram raids on villages. One of her stories was titled, They Ordered Her to Be a Suicide Bomber. She Had Another Idea. Malsi Sigun, executive director of the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, said this, Dion's reporting on Nigeria's Boko Haram conflict has been nothing short of phenomenal. Dion won the Michael Kelly Award in 2018 for her reporting on Boko Haram. This award celebrates, quote, the fearless pursuit and expression of truth. She was also part of the New York Times team that won a Pulitzer Prize in international reporting in 2020 for her coverage of Russian interests and involvement in the Central African Republic. She recently published a book called In Pursuit of Disobedient Women, She currently covers politics for the New York Times. I have some exciting news. Remarkable People is now brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. Yes, you've got that right. The Remarkable People podcast is sponsored by the Remarkable Paper Tablet Company. Here are seven reasons why I like my Remarkable Paper Tablet. First, the feeling and sound of writing are close to pencil on paper. Second, it lasts two weeks on a battery charge. Third, you don't have to charge the pencil. Fourth, the pencil has an eraser, just like in real life. Fifth, typing on a keyboard is usually interpreted as multitasking and rude, but writing notes means you're paying rapt attention. Six, all my notes are immediately backed up and accessible from other devices. Seven, I can drag PDFs to the Remarkable Mac app and they will appear on the tablet. This is a remarkably well thought out product. It doesn't try to be all things to all people, but it takes notes better than anything I've used. Check out the recent reviews of the latest version. I'm Guy Kawasaki, and this is Remarkable People, and now here's the remarkable Dion Searcy. did you get from the cornfields of Nebraska to <laughs> Dakar and West Africa? Like, wh- how did that happen? Yeah. It was a pretty long, slow climb, I guess. Journalism-wise, I came up through the ranks in, in a way that I think a lot of Gen X journalism people kind of do. I worked at a series of local newspapers. I studied journalism in college. I didn't get a master's degree, but it just just very slowly climbed my way up from small newspaper to bigger, bigger, bigger kind of newspaper. I think it's a really good way to spend a journalism career because by that point in time, you have a range of experience. 
So you cover city council meetings, you cover police activity, crime and shootings and gang stuff. You cover, I don't know, education and politics and whatever. And I feel like it's a channel that is kind of closed off to journalism, you know, kids these days because local news is in such a slump and they're just, the papers are shutting down and... It's it's a pathway that I think is a little trickier okay. to do right now. So now you're you're covering economics for the Wall Street Journal, and from that you go to West Africa. Like, how does that happen? Uh, I was at the Wall Street Journal. I was doing investigative work there, and then I got a job at the New York Times, where I think everybody. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of reporters yeah. want to work there <laughs> at the Times, and so I took a job at um, covering the economy with the understanding that I didn't always want to cover the economy there. And I think that's the beauty of American journalism and of these big newspapers is you're a generalist, so you can cover everything. I think European newspapers often operate a little differently where people are specialists in different things for their entire lives. But we, we are generalists. I would, I would love to write about food for the New York Times or about opera for the New York Times in a way that I wouldn't really want to write about that for the Wall Street Journal because their emphasis is on business news. And it's a different thing. And that was really fun. And I'm so happy that I had that experience of learning how corporations work and stocks fluctuate and that kind of thing. I think all of it was really good training for these giant, massive international beats. So I covered 25 countries in West Africa. And you cover everything that happens. <laughs> so... And and what was the thinking? Okay, so you have three kids, you're living in New York, and you say, and your husband is working for the zoo, and you say, let's go be the bureau chief for the Times in West Africa. A lot of dual parent couples, one, one, one person has a lot of flexibility in their job. And that really wasn't the case for us. We were just both going full steam. And I think we were really tired of it. <laughs> so it gets really exhausting and it prompts a lot of like stupid fights. And it, it's really hard. And I think it's hard as a woman when um, society's expectations are for you to take care of kids and to take a secondary role. And so we wanted to shake things up and where you get in New York City and you're caught in a rut of like childcare drama and who can work from home or who, who gets to work. That was one big thing. Like I get to go to the office or I get to work on a Saturday or even I get to exercise today because you're stuck with the kids. And so a friend, a friend had compared it to you're both out in the ocean and the only way for you to survive is to push the other one down <laughs> underwater. <laughs> so the only way for you to get a breath. And that's really what it felt like. So we were pretty eager to shake things up. We'd always talked about moving abroad. I pitched my husband on it a thousand times before. And so finally he said yes. I think that I probably have as ignorant a view of Africa as your typical American and you address this in your book. It's it's hot, dirty, full of crime. Everybody's a terrorist, et cetera, et cetera. So pretending you're writing the Africa for Dummies book. <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of what I thought my book maybe was about in some sort of yeah. way, you know. Because Can you give us the gist of Africa for people who are ignorant of what it's really like? For a lot of Americans, 
it's, it's, we have so many stereotypes if we even think about it at all. I mean, we often don't even consider the place as a, as a place, as a, as a, the old saying that Africa is a country that people think of Africa as mm -hmm. just one, one spot when there are 50 some nations and all kinds of nationalities and languages and cultures and whatever. And so I think Americans have the stereotype of Africa perpetuated by Hollywood as a place of wars and savagery and famine and disease and maybe a few wild animals. So it's, it, it's not like that, right? I mean, there are bad things that happen in African countries, just like there are bad things that happen in America. And there are very universal sets of problems. I mean, I, I had this massive, massive beat and I tried to break it down into, by, by covering 25 countries, I tried to break it down into different themes that I saw that were going on there that have very real parallels to America. Climate change is a huge issue there as the Sahara like spreads, um, the winds carry the, the sand farther down and the rains are fewer and farther between. Um, there are great demographic shifts that are happening um, there, a growing population, a big population of young people. Um, and, and that's true in America, too. We have huge demographic shifts here with, with places becoming less white. There's urban urbanization. People are emptying out of the countryside, moving into cities. That's happening in America um, to crazy extremes. And a lot of times these things all uh, cycle together, like people are leaving their farms because of climate change and because there's so many young people who don't have jobs and they're moving to the city. So everything's kind of intertwined. And another thing happening there is extremism. Um, you're seeing a rise in in uh, conservative Islam. And here we have extremism too. So I really was, was eager to draw some parallels to America to make, make these unfamiliar themes sound familiar. How did the Times prep you to move over there? The Times is a big corporation and there's a lot of cover your butt liability stuff that goes into it. But they also, you know, want to prepare you for the absolute worst because you are sometimes covering a war or going into dangerous spots. So they fitted me for a bulletproof vest and a, and a helmet and put me through hazardous environments training where former British commandos teach you how to avoid landmines or watch out for snipers and that kind of thing. They And they pretend to kidnap you and show you what that might be like and tell you what to do in those circumstances. And I guess the biggest tip I got was your, your best chances of survival in a kidnapping are in the first few minutes because kidnapping is babysitting. Like nobody wants to babysit somebody for a long time. So eventually they just get tired of you and kill you if it, if it drags on. So that, I thought that was a pretty interesting insight. And wait, so, yeah. wait, wait, so does that mean the optimal strategy is resist as much as you can? Yeah, I think so. Like try to get out if there's a way to, if there's a way to flee, run, if there are any opportunities. As opposed to be cooperative and reason with yeah, them, et cetera, et cetera. As opposed to like the normal street crime, like the advice that you get, turn over your wallet if you get stuck up or something. That's that's a little bit of a different kind of strategy. It was really strange. But 
then uh, they also teach you how to, it's like a first aid course, but like really, really hardcore first aid, like how to, if you have a bullet wound to the chest, you know, what to, how to basically stabilize you or your photographer along with you or something like that so that you can stabilize someone until help arrives. But the times also they would, they gave me a list of questions that only I knew the answer to, like, what was your grandmother's favorite meal to make or something like that so that they could determine if a kidnapper had me, that they weren't being fooled. If the kidnapper called my editor and said, I had Dion in wherever, then that would assure them that they really had me because they were answers to questions that only I would know. So, And, and, and you're, you're prepping this and doing this training and you don't think maybe I shouldn't do this with three kids? I mean, what? that's an interesting question because would you ask a man that question, right? Like, do do men get? Actually, I would. <laughs> okay, true, but um, but I feel like sometimes it's expected for a. a guy, it's okay for a man, a father to do these kinds of jobs without a lot of real questioning. And and I will say that the times at the time and still had a lot of moms who were in dangerous postings. Anne Barnard was in Beirut and covering Syria for many years. Rukmini Kalamaki was covering um, ISIS from, from New York, but flying into very dangerous places. And there were a lot of women on the staff. And I, I was really proud to work for an organization that if, if somebody wanted to do it and could work it out with their family and their partner and have kids. And like, I, I think the kids would definitely get concerned at sometimes, but we have all this training and all this background and I'm not 20 years old running in, you know, like some goofy cowboy or something into dangerous situations. <laughs> so, and, and what I really found that some of the best stories are told on the sidelines of conflict not in the middle of conflict, like finding victims and just hearing them out and hearing what they have to say. I really think that that is some of the best reporting than being in the middle and in the thick of things when it's really dangerous. Okay. So let's pursue that path a little more. How do you write a story about something like a group such as the Boko Haram? First of all, am I pronouncing it yeah, right? You because are, it's yeah. Boko Haram? Mm -hmm. Boko Haram, okay. yes. So let's say you decide, which you did, to write a story about Boko Haram. How do you proceed to do something like that? I mean, this is different than calling up Apple PR and requesting a meeting with Tim Cook. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, Boko Haram is a terrorist organization that operates in northeastern Nigeria and some of the surrounding countries. They're one of the most secretive organizations in the world. They don't, you know, tweet at reporters or, you know, even ISIS has like some, some channels of communication. I mean, Boko Haram, they're out in the boonies and they do their own thing. And, and for me, I studied up, I read books, I read articles, and then I wanted to interview a fighter. I thought it would be amazing to talk to, to find some, some fighter somehow, but it seemed really impossible. So I, I went to, you know, the place where Boko Haram began and this movement began like many terrorist movements because of government corruption and government neglect 
in a city where there's no there are no paved roads, no electricity in many places. Yet government officials were living it up in with fancy cars and you know nice houses. And so that's how it began. And so I wanted to go you know to the center of the action and see what I could find. And what did you find? <laughs> Well, I couldn't do anything alone because I'm nobody I'm from nowhere. And so I, I hired a local journalist to help me out. And in this case, it was Shehu Abubakar. He was the fisheries and agriculture reporter for a newspaper called The Daily Trust there. And I hired him and we went around and he kind of explained the situation to me. I mean, it's a pretty common thing for international reporters to rely on local folks to help guide you. I mean, every... A reporter I used to work with at the Wall Street Journal liked to say every story needs a shepherd. And you really, you know, regardless of where you are, if you're in Podunk, Nebraska, like where I'm from, you know, you you still need somebody to guide you through when you're either to navigate the bureaucracy or to kind of tell you points of view and and so I, I listened to him and I became really intrigued by this notion of of things that were happening, which were suicide bombings in in these cities, and many of them carried out by women. And that really set me on a path of trying to figure out what in the world was behind all that. And, and, and what causes a woman to become, well, anybody really, but yeah. what causes a woman to become a suicide bomber? Well, that's what I wanted to figure out. And as as is the case with many things, I, I very slowly learned over time that that these women were not becoming suicide bombers. They were being forced to carry suicide bombs. They were being explosives tied to their waist, marched at gunpoint after seeing their families slaughtered in front of them. And very naive, in some cases, girls. And girls, girls, not women, girls who were 14 years old, 12 years old, 8 years old, in some cases. And really, I, I really tried to focus on their bravery and, and change the narrative because the government government was painting them as 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 villains you know as evil suicide bombing terrible people and that just wasn't going on and so once i started talking to them and hearing about ones who had turned in their bombs who had uh, surrendered to authorities or found other ways like very very clever ways to get out of it i really was um, on a mission to portray them as as heroes, really, or just as something that the government was not portraying them, I guess, as. Because they were they were really trying to paint them as bad people, and that just wasn't the case. I have to say, I was just riveted with, with your description of how you did this. I come from the tech world, and there's nothing even close to, I mean, nothing. And if you, on a scale of 1 to 100, you're like 150, and tech <laughs> is about 5. So, yeah, it was... I think, like, one for me, like, one of the most fun and exciting and 
interesting things about reporting is when your assumptions are turned on their heads. And it might be similar, you know, in the tech world. I don't know if you go into something thinking that, okay, this is one way and I'm going to, you know, just find out all about it and whatever. And then you find out a piece of information that just completely flips the script and and turns your head just completely backwards <laughs> as you try to figure it out and piece it together. And that to me is the most fun, exciting part about journalism is when you're just 100% wrong and then figuring out why you're wrong and what is really happening. And I feel like that's your curiosity. That's the importance of curiosity, I guess. Did, did you ever gain insights into the mindset of a Boko Haram member? Like, why do they join? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Just listening to girls who were forced, who spent a lot of time with Boko Haram or were forced to be married to them or even who were maybe willing. I guess women's roles was often... Uh, often relegated to doing laundry and cooking and cleaning on, in the Boko Haram camps. But even people who were there willingly were there because the situation with them was better than it was at home. So in, in some ways, that was the driving force. And I started out my journalism career at a place that no longer exists called the City News Bureau of Chicago, where I covered a lot of gang warfare in Chicago. And I found a lot of parallels. I found myself thinking about these stories I would cover in the in the housing projects on the south side of Chicago about kids who just had no jobs, um, no money, no family structure. The government, you know, city government didn't care about them. Society just had cast them aside. And it made them, you know, gave them this sense of belonging. And you add to that just really, really, really awful unemployment levels in these places. And Boko Haram, when you join Boko Haram, they gave you a motorbike. Like that would appeal to many teenage mm -hmm. boys. So I think getting a gun and a motorbike and having this camaraderie, I think was really, really appealing. What well, th this is going to sound like a ridiculous question, but w what separates you and I from being a Boko Haram kind of organization member huh. I mean, is it just by the grace of god or privilege i think sheer privilege i think I, I i just was constantly reminded of my privileged position when i was covering west africa like i'm white i'm a woman i'm from america i'm from one of the most prestigious news organizations in the world i you know, but but like look at unrest in America now. Boko Haram really got violent after their leader died in police custody. Think of that for a minute <laughs> in the context of what's going on in America. He was it was an extrajudicial killing. Like he was shot in the head by police when they arrested him. But that kind of thing triggers riots and violence. And in places where conditions are even more extreme, obviously, than in America, it, it spirals out of control. And you add to that a religious I don't, I don't know if I want to say a cult, maybe like a cult-like kind of experience or just real conservative, a, a belief that all government is bad, all, all Western education is bad. That's a big thing of Boko Haram because they thought that Western education was poisoning the minds of these people because they would see government officials send their kids 
off to boarding school in the UK or America, and those kids would come back and also run for office and steal from the citizens just like their parents had done. And to an uneducated kid growing up without anything, that looks like Western education is bad. I mean, you can, I'm Mm -hmm. dramatically oversimplifying, but I mean, you can really see how these movements start, I I felt like, Mm -hmm. and, and that you obviously not sympathize, but you can just understand how things happen. In your book, you drew one of the more amazing parallels, which is Donald Trump and the president of Senegal. So... (laughs) Are there parallels? For sure. I think we're seeing that all the time. I was seeing parallels when I was when I was in West Africa, but now even more so now that a lot of things that Trump are doing, talking about extending his mandate, his term, right? Talking about blaming election rigging before an election to kind of achieve, hopefully achieve a result that you want. These are straight out of playbooks of dictators and corrupt regimes. I mean, I'm not calling Trump corrupt or a dictator or anything like that, but they are tactics that have been used by regimes that we would probably not consider as examples um, or role models for democracy, for a healthy democracy. So I think there, you know, more and more we're seeing those kinds of things. But there's corruption in every administration. And I think maybe we had a really great story about the end of American exceptionalism. And I'm I'm really hopeful that these times that we're in right now make us stop and consider when we're like, oh, well, that election rigging happened in Africa. Oh, it would never happen here. Well, maybe bad things do happen here, could happen here. And maybe we're not so different from other places that are in crisis. Two more questions about Africa, okay? Mm -hmm. So one is, when you see some Hollywood star or starlet jump and become this activist, what's your reaction to that? Part of the problem? Part of the solution? Is it hypocrisy? Is it angelic, great philanthropy? What is it? That's a really interesting question. And I think a lot of the international NGOs and the UN organizations do have celebrity. There's a name they have for it. I can't remember. But they do have celebrities who go out to refugee camps to try to call attention to things and and to get donations. And I think there's... There's, I don't know, I haven't studied it. <laughs> I'm not an academic, but there's probably a place for certainly calling attention to things. But, you know, I just, I just was typing up an interview I did with Kehinde Wiley, who is uh, a black American with a Nigerian father and African American mother who did the Obama portrait, right? And he, he has opened a residency in Dakar for artists. And I think rather than like being a celebrity going out and like serving soup at a refugee camp, he is working on getting more attention for African photographers. And, you know, a Nigerian photographer had a residency at his place uh, last time. Uh, I talked to a Nigerian author, a novelist. You know, he, he is trying to showcase Africa's talents that way by, by giving these people time and space to work on their craft. And I think that is much more noble. Um, you know, musicians who kind of break through to Western audiences and just... We're at the point, I feel like, with 
Africa where even just, I mean, sometimes stereotypes are so bad that even just showing Africa as human beings or artists or painters or potters or something from from these countries is is important to make people realize, oh, right, there are individuals there who aren't out on safari or something. Our stereotypes are so bad of the of the continent. So what <laughs> was the effect of your kids living in Africa on them? Well, I think they know a lot about a place of the of a part of the world that a lot of people don't know about. I'm proud of that. I like that. They went to an international school where there were kids from all over the world, but you know, all of them were listening to Taylor Swift. So I don't know how much <laughs> how much uh, difference there was there. But but I do think we were touring public high schools last year, last fall. I, I got back a year ago, right in time for um, New York City's insane public high school process, where you go around and tour schools, and we we're going through. A hallway, and on the hallway were posters of like a history class with posters of um, Peru and I don't know pottery or something, and I don't know all these different countries and like highlighting things, a specialty from that country. And we got to one that was just Africa and a mud hut, and my son just cracked up laughing. He's like, "Are you kidding me?" And I was really psyched that he understood and got that. So, and we talked about, you know, what he would put up there. And it was, it was, it was really cool that these kids know that there are complex countries and nations and peoples in, in other places. So, I recall you said something like you didn't take malaria shots and you, right. you, know, you started letting them go out by themselves. And it's that I think most American parents would say, oh my God, yeah. well, first of all, I would never go live in Africa. But if I did, yeah. I would live in this totally protected compound and my kids would yeah. never leave and we'd have all the shots mm -hmm. and you know, everything. A, yeah, a, a lot of Americans did that. To be honest, I mean, there were protected compounds, even in even in Dakar. There, or everybody lives together. Everybody has a security guard. My office had a security guard, and I lived in the office. So, but but I tried to take cues from what Senegalese parents were doing, and there were kids, like two kids to a bicycle, out riding around. I mean, my kids aren't coordinated enough to do that. But but my son, by the time we left, he was twelve. When we left, he was taking taxis by himself all over the city. And, you know, some of the taxi drivers didn't even speak French, which was the language he was learning at school. They spoke Wolof, but he realized, okay, well, I can communicate, I can point and I can whatever. And I'm really proud that he had those skills. And my girls were going to the ocean where there was a riptide apparently, but they knew how to swim and it just felt like it was overblown. And there were other kids in the ocean, Senegalese kids. So I really feel like a lot of, you know, living abroad and in different cultures is just watching and learning. And they were part of that. And, and I hope that they have that bug to go out on their own. One of my girls wants to be in the Peace Corps. One of them wants to like study abroad. We'll see, but I hope they do it. Well, they, they certainly have the right DNA. <laughs> There's no question about that. Yeah. Uh, switching gears now, more generally about journalism. So has journalism helped you do something? Has it helped you contribute? Well, you know, I... I 
Like I'm a huge believer in journalism and like people believe in science or God or (laughs) whatever, you know, I really, really Mm -hmm. believe that journalism has the power to write the first draft of history. You know, journalists obviously don't always get it right. And I do think that there is a place for people of color and from different nations to write their own stories, to tell their own stories. And I hope that women that I wrote about in my book do tell their own stories at some point. But I felt like I wanted to be a conveyor and a translator to this world that most people don't think about. And if I can make people see um, West Africans in a new light in these countries. I met, I met someone who traveled to Dakar because, I, because they had read my writing and they never would have traveled there before. I was really proud of that. I was you know, uh, really proud of the fact that a Nigerian singer I wrote about you know, got, got to perform at South by Southwest because they had read my story. I was psyched about that. I, I was in the, the Central African Republic one time, which is this really war-torn um, country, you know, that has a lot of diamonds. And it's, I, I interviewed a Catholic bishop there, one of the most powerful people in the country. And I always said to people I interviewed, you know, is there anything you want me to tell you know the world because you have this platform in front of you right here what what would you like people to know and he just said we in the central african republic are humans and, and that was his message because so many he was like you know i travel throughout africa and people don't even know central african republic is a country in africa other africans don't know that and so It's just like, it just tore me up inside that he wanted people to be reminded that there were human beings in that country. And anything I could do to contribute, you know, to the fact that, that people from West Africa were human beings with, you know, and these were nations with lives, with, with, with economies, with, with the tech scene, like the tech scene in Nigeria is huge, right? Um, Jack Dorsey went there, was planning on moving to Nigeria earlier before COVID happened. Mark Zuckerberg traveled to Nigeria. I mean, there, there are, you know, there, there are tech startups and hubs and all that kind of stuff there. There is, I went to a, a poetry slam after going to KFC in Ghana one night, you know, I mean, there's just like, you know, it's real people having real lives that deserve as much attention as, as us. Okay. If someone's listening to this podcast and says, I want to be like her, I want to be a journalist like her. How? What, what do they do? How? Do, what kind of courses? What kind of experiences? Right. Well, I think, you know, my path to journalism was this slow and steady climb up through a lot of local newspapers and local newspapers are closing down at alarming rates in America right now. So it's tricky. But I think uh, writing for any number of websites, contacting, I always like to talk to young journalists about their career paths and being in touch with as many people as possible is is a good idea. A, a lot of people go to Columbia Journalism School. I did not have that privilege. I went to school at the University of Nebraska, you know, but it had a great mm-hmm. campus newspaper and it was me and my friends putting out a paper and making mistakes and and having successes. And that's really important. But I also think one other really, really critical thing to do is to read the newspaper. 
and, and understand journalism and what it is and, and how it works and how a story is conveyed and, and, you know, have opinions about, look at, compare different, different newspapers to TV or whatever else, because I think how things are covered is, and being critical of that is really important too. Okay. Can you give us a crash course on how to conduct a great interview? Um, well, I think you start by listening, <laughs> you know, and, and not and not assuming things or being open to the fact that your assumptions may be challenged and, and are wrong. I think doing your homework on a person is really important. Reading all the stories that have been written about them, knowing something about their bio is important. But I, I like to do two things. I mean, I try to be empathetic to people, even that maybe like personally, I think, or you know, I don't agree with or something, but I'm not a robot. Like oh, an editor I used to have um, always said, reporting is a series of human interactions. Like you're a person and I'm a person. Like if your kid is crying in the background, like have a conversation about that kid because then everybody's more comfortable. Or, or I interviewed a group of Senegalese migrants one time and they were really nervous. There were these young teenage boys and they all had a scar on their forehead. Like all of them had like scars on their forehead. And it made me laugh because my son had just fallen down and got a scar in his forehead. And so I was telling them about that and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about 10 when that happened to me too. Or, you know, and just everybody's more comfortable and we're all people. And, and, and I also think it's really important to ask people, what do they want out of this interview? What is the message that they want conveyed? And what am I forgetting to ask them? I think those are all super critical um, things to, to make sure you bring up in the interview. Okay. Uh, the flip side of this is, how do you also maintain distance? Or should you maintain distance? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's a real question roiling journalism right now is activism versus straight up journalism. And, you know, journalists are not activists. We do maintain distance. And I think that that does not preclude you, however, from channeling your empathy to better understand a situation, channeling your rage even. You know, you see when I was covering these victims of Boko Haram, like little girls who are sent out to do, um, you know, go on suicide missions and, and the government then calling them traitors or bad people. I think it's okay to channel that like, what are you kidding me into a story that like, okay, then here, here it is. Here is what this girl went through. And you're telling me, you know, she's a criminal. And she watched her her mother get slaughtered in front of her. Um, she was told she would be raped if she didn't, you know, walk down this pathway with a bond strapped to her. She couldn't actually physically untie the bond because it was tied behind her back. She then surrendered um, to police, and you put her in jail for eight months. And channeling the rage that you have at that, I don't really feel like that shows bias. That shows, you know, empathy and informs your reporting. And I think that that's really important. Small story, but did the woman get her bag of rice where you questioned whether that was ethical? Yeah, I, I had a, a fixer who wanted to deliver a bag of rice to a woman we had just talked to who was completely destitute. And we're not supposed to pay people. And that would have been, you know, it wasn't just a bag of rice. It was like, you have to translate that into, 
like mm-hmm. American terms, it was like, you know, a new car or something for even more important than that, because she would, it would have sustained her. And you always are constantly making these seeing awful things and trying to understand, like, you know, I guess the point is, I'm going to write about it to make the situation better and make presidents see it. And, you know, you have this huge, huge audience as a New York Times reporter, but my fixer wanted to buy her a bag of rice. And I just, I just was like, fine, buy her a bag of rice. You know, she has all these kids and I ended up not writing about her. So there wasn't an ethical question, but but yeah, it's tricky and it's really hard when you're, uh, you know, you're supposed to be objective and you're supposed to do all this stuff. So I guess a lot of times that's that's why it sucks when your story doesn't run on the front page because you really want to get all the attention in the world. And then you'll write a story. You know, I was battling against news about Trump at the beginning of the Trump administration. And there would be some story about somebody trying to curry favor by sleeping in a Trump hotel or whatever. And then my story about, I don't know, refugee or something would get shoved in the back of the paper and just, <laughs> so, that was, uh, but that happens, you know, and it's, it, it's just part of a deal and you just try harder and try again and try to figure out what works. And a lot of times I benefited from being, being a distraction on the front page from what was going on in, in America. You can find a story and use it to illustrate a larger point. But as we've seen lately, you could also, not you, but a person could find a story where someone drank Clorox or someone took this other kind of medicine or someone never wore a mask Mm -hmm. and went to a crowded bar and didn't get coronavirus. So how do you balance Mm -hmm. the, the power of storytelling versus you know, sort of the scientific, is this a representative sample? Is this statistically valid? Well, I think there are definitely checks and balances at newspapers. You know, that's why we have editors to make sure you're not going off the rails, (laughs) you know, and to reel you back in. But I think you also really have to constantly question yourself, like, is this representative? Um, Use as much data as you can. We have really great reporters who who work in data mining and that kind of thing, but also just talk to as many people as possible. Don't talk to officials and, and, and trust no one, you know, or, or at least not really. But I think you really have to think always about what someone's motivation is for telling you something. You know, is it power? Is it money? Is it to make themselves look better? And everybody has a motivation for talking to a reporter everybody, whether it's for good or not good. And I think that you just keep that in mind and try to present as as many points of view as possible and call people who know. I mean, I work, you know, in a, in a really big newsroom where there's always somebody who's faced this situation before me. We have an ethics, um, an ethics editor. We have other reporters who've covered things and come across things. And you just have to have to be careful. But it is a constant process because you have so much power in your hands as a reporter, especially for the New York Times with that platform. And especially when the president's attacking the paper, like you don't want to portray something wrong and do something stupid when you're in the spotlight constantly on on the president's Twitter feed.
getting a little tactical, what are your tools of the trade? Yeah, what's, I'm like what's... so hardcore old school. I have a pen and a notebook. And <laughs> okay. if I'm if I'm in an office, I I use, you know, I take notes on my computer. I often record interviews on my iPhone. I, it's so simple. I just always look at the photographers that I travel with and feel bad for them carrying all their equipment around, you know, or if I'm with, out with a video person or something because they're having like all this juggling, all this stuff. But really, it's it's pretty simple. I think being a reporter and especially, I mean, iPhones are kind of revolutionary in that way because you don't have to juggle a recorder and, and that sort of thing. But it's pretty simple. Okay. Some advice about working with editors. Ooh, working with editors. I really like my editors. I'm not one of those people who is angry and cantankerous about editing. <laughs> I feel like I have had very few editors I didn't like or didn't learn something from. I mean, I just really love having a partner. And and so I think the worst kind of editing you get is when your editor isn't into your story. But if you just get them on your side and get them into it, and it's so fun. It's such a fun partnership. And it's also aggravating. You know, I think every reporter wants to write really, really long, but learning to write short is a craft that's worth understanding and knowing. And I, I don't know. I just think like you should any writer that goes into a situation with an editor angry is just really off base. I think reporters can be great friends and, and partners in writing. Well, what makes a great editor? I think somebody who listens and really understands. I mean, I like editors with a sense of humor. That's my favorite thing that get when you're trying to be funny and don't want you to be straight up in your in your stories or get when you're trying to be a little bit quirky or weird or appreciate details, especially in reporting from West Africa or when you're out in the field somewhere or even honestly, like even in the middle of the country. Like when I go back to Nebraska, where I'm from to write, I want to write about what a place looks like. What are people wearing? What are, you know, because I feel like, especially in New York and LA and Silicon Valley, like we all get in these little bubbles where we think everybody has a Patagonia vest on and everybody (laughs) or or in New York, like wears all black or whatever. And just to give a sense of like, hi, these are different people in different places and here's, you know, how life is here. I mean, I I had a research assistant in West Africa, a Sierra Leonean, and I would try to say to him, pretend like you're on the moon when you go out and report. Like, no one's been to the moon. What does it look like? What does it smell like? You know, what is it? What does it feel like? Um, What are the sounds that you hear? And incorporate that, like sprinkle it into your reporting, because I think that's really, really just makes makes a story stand out from other boring he said, she said stuff. Okay, working with photographers. Oh, man, I love working with photographers. It's one of my favorite things about the New York Times is is getting to work with great photographers. My brother's a photojournalist, and so I grew up kind of as his sidekick, you know, in the dark room back when there were dark rooms. <laughs> and, and so um, I really find that photographers just can you can learn so much by getting up early in the morning. You know, photographers are always chasing light like that that sort of horizontal light at the beginning of the day and the end of the day and so my reporting either won't be started or will be a hundred percent wrapped up and the photographer wants to go out and i go out too because even it helps again with those little details or they might meet someone 
who will completely change the trajectory of my reporting. And then I want to bend there and then that person will be gone. And I, I just, I can't ever let a photographer go out without me. It's just, I can't do it. If it's my story, like I want to be beside them and I want to have that partnership. I want to talk to them and them to like be part of the story process because that partnership I think is so important. And it's really rare in, in newsrooms these days. Like a lot of, a lot of newsrooms don't hire photographers. They can't afford it. It's expensive. It's, you know, they'll run a wire photo. And I think stories really, really lack when that happens. And the, and the Times okay. does this great job of visual journalism and displaying things. So. Okay. Uh, now, working with fixers. Working with fixers is can be really tricky. I mean, fixers are colleagues, and you have to choose your colleagues. And so there's personality involved. I mean, I found that my predecessor, he left me a list of fixers that he used in places, and he kind of liked the strong male personality type, and I don't. And so I found that pretty quickly that just I just... That's, I'm not into that. And so I would try to, you want to find a local journalist who knows the situation, who knows the scene, who other people um, have used, other other reporters have used before. So you know they're straight up. You want to make sure they're not paying people because that is something that some organizations from other countries or maybe even your own country, you know, if there's an unethical journalist out there and they're having the fixer pay someone, you have to sniff that out and you just like, you can't do but, that. Paying the fixer to pay someone to do what? Yeah, to tell you things, to talk to you. Like a oh. lot of people in poor places, you know, really want to be paid for interviews and or bribed. You know, bribe, uh, I'm going to bribe this cop to tell me, you know, it's stuff. I'm sure that kind of stuff happens like in, in, you know, our own country with some CD organizations. But I think you have to make sure, you know, in, in, in certain countries, that's kind of a way of life. Um, just journalism standards are different. And so you have to be careful that that is not happening straight up. And um, you have to pay a fair wage and you have to worry about their safety because as a foreign journalist, I can fly out of somewhere. I have a major newspaper willing to get me out of any situation and go to any means to rescue me if I'm in trouble, if I make a government official angry or a cop mad and get thrown in jail. But local journalists don't have that luxury. Sometimes they can't even get a visa to get out and they're going to get flack if you make a government official mad and then you're back in your home office just tooling around and they're stuck with it. So their safety and security is so, so, so important. And and I, I just became very, very close to a lot of my fixers. They're very good friends. And um, okay. yeah, that, I think that's really important. Can you give us some examples of publications and journalists that you admire? I like reporters and journalists and photographers who have you can really see their soul in their in their work i think our correspondent from afghanistan mujib who is about to go to india is and and work from there is is one of the most amazing you know his work he just pours his soul into all his stories um 
Azam, uh, what is Azam's last name? Now you're like putting me on the spot. We have our Mexico correspondents who are really great at the New York Times. All of them have really just put their heart into their work. My my um, colleague, who's a freelancer, Ashley Gilbertson, he's a photographer, and his his empathy for the subjects that he photographs. He he does a lot of work for our opinion section sometimes, but also the news side and his. His empathy really shows through in his work. I think these are largely New York Times people, sorry to say. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> if you're, that's if a you're, little self-referential. Yeah. yeah. If you're not reading Stephanie McCrumman at the Washington Post, you're completely missing out. She does nice little like kind of moments in time stories and just it, her coverage of the coronavirus, anything she writes about is just completely rock solid, amazing, and will blow you away. How do you get your news? I read my newspaper a lot. And I also have all these weird Twitter accounts that I follow from West Africa still that I'm kind of like different reporters or different publications that I really like. I read the Washington Post and I I like to check in on the newspapers where I've worked at before, the Wall Street Journal, the Seattle Times, Newsday, the Chicago Tribune. But I also read the Omaha World Herald a lot and just to <laughs> keep up with what's going on in the Midwest because I find that that that's we just often ignore huge swaths of the country that have a lot to say and that shape what is going on for all of us, especially in the election. Um, the Madison, Wisconsin newspaper is really great too, in terms of just, you know, that's a swing state. And now with the shooting in Kenosha that happened, like that's a really important place and knowing what's happening. I mean, I love local newspapers. I always get the local paper wherever I go. So one thing you did not say is you did not say, I forced myself to watch Fox or read Breitbart or well, The Blaze to get a contrarian opinion. That's true. I don't watch a lot of TV at all. But when I travel, when I'm in a car on long stretches on the road, I definitely listen to conservative AM radio. And I like to find the local conservative stations, too, that have like local radio celebrities, I guess, who have um, news shows. I love to hear even even the ads on conservative radio, I feel like can give you a sense for what people are feeling, like a lot of ads for like home security systems and things like that, because I think that gives you a sense like people feel like they're under threat. Oh, okay, I get it. That's who the audiences are playing to. I, I love listening to other points of view. I mean, my Facebook feed is all my friends and family from Nebraska, you know, a lot of conservatives. And so I, I really like looking at what all sides of everybody are talking about and thinking about and writing about right now. I think it's fascinating. Two last questions, okay? Mm -hmm. So second to the last question, after all of this, working for these publications all over the world, covering this, all these kinds of tragedies and pain and suffering and also good stuff, right. where are you now mentally? Hmm thinking about whether my kid's school is going to be online or not. <laughs> Boy, I mean, this pandemic has really put us in a tailspin, right? But what I was doing, you know, before, uh, what I'm still doing now is writing about divides in America. Um, I'm doing political features on political divides. And I think that mentally for me is I'm drawing a lot of parallels to what I saw in West Africa. I'm, I'm missing going out in the field in, in, uh, 
maybe a little more adrenaline filled conditions. That's definitely a bit of a bummer <laughs> and a letdown, but I think that's true for everybody. But I'm trying to, I, I think mentally, I'm just trying to convey America in a way that as, as a foreign country, because I think a lot of parts of America to people of any political part of the spectrum are, are foreign. And we're, we're so divided at where we're at that I think that, um, you know, really, really giving a detailed look and using, you know, channeling empathy and doing all the things I did while I was abroad to write about America are really important right now, too. Are you hopeful? <sighs> I don't know, man. <laughs> yeah, sure. No, that's a hell of an answer right there. I mean, I'm definitely a glass half empty kind of outlook. Ask my husband; it drives him crazy. I really, really have a negative outlook on everything always. But, <laughs> but that said, yeah, you know, I hope I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Are you hopeful? I, I'm a. My glass is always three quarters full. Oh, that's nice. So I, that's just in my DNA. So good. Good. Um, we'll see what happens with the election. We'll see if there's a vaccine. We'll see all these things. And I think going out on the streets in New York and seeing people still doing crazy stuff and eating outside and having a good time or wearing their masks and doing going about their life. Sure, there's there's some hope. <laughs> OK, so I, I picked this up in the middle of this interview that I should ask you this question, which uh -huh. is, is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to communicate? <laughs> No, no, no. I think I think we covered. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. I think we covered everything. So. No, that can't be true. Oh, okay. I'm going to apply to the New York Times. I, I think what could I say are, you know, um, it's it was interesting working for the New York Times abroad when it was under fire by the Trump administration. It's interesting being back now and knowing that people, you know, we do have this target kind of for a certain set of people on the left and the right who don't like the New York Times. So I I think that that is one thing that a lot of reporters are trying to figure out how to manage right now. And, you know, we just keep doing our job. And I think that that's it's really important, I think. Reading the newspaper and reading local newspapers, it's just so important and trying to instill those values into kids. And I try to make my kids read the front page every day. I'm not always successful. But, um, you know, I think those, those kinds of things are really important to our country and our democracy, whether you agree with things that are in the papers or not, and correspond and talk about talk about race, talk about the issues that are out there. I think that that's a really, really important part of, of what's happening right now. I've covered everything I wanted to cover, and I really appreciate you doing this. Mm -hmm. I'll send you a bag of rice if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay, time to read you a couple of reviews. I just love the focus on this podcast, finding those remarkable people and getting into their stories, their own lives, and finding out who they truly are. One of my favorites is the episode with Martha Nino, being that I am an immigrant myself. Sometimes we don't see how remarkable we humans really are. Thank you, Guy, for bringing those stories to us. I say download every single episode of this podcast and listen to them all because that's where you'll find your true successes that you can use for yourself. And Guy Kawasaki has a knack for finding those gems. Love it. That's from Polish Peter. One more review. 
At age 8, my daughter wrote a report on Jane Goodall. She's now 11, and a while back we listened to the remarkable podcast with Jane. At the time, I knew she was attentive, but I wasn't sure what stuck. This week, she announced she wants to give up beef. Why, I asked. She answered with, Jane would approve. She tied it back to Jane and how global warming is affecting animals around the planet and how cows, as she learned in the Netflix Explained series, contribute to global warming. So she wants to play her part in less meat consumption. Thank you, Guy and Jane, for telling the stories that inspire action in all ages. That's from Rain Mom. Thank you, Rain Mom, and thank you, Polish Peter. Go to the Apple Podcast app and write a review, too. I'd be happy to read it. Back to Dion Searcy. I hope you get the idea. Dion is a remarkable reporter. Just learning about what she's covered scares me. It must be great to look back at one's body of work and see how much truth it brought to light. My thanks to Holly Brady for suggesting Dion for Remarkable People and then helping make it happen. My thanks to Peg Fitzpatrick and Jeff C. who helped bring this podcast to light every week. I'm Guy Kawasaki and this is Remarkable People. Remember, wash your hands, maintain a social distance, don't go into crowded bars and restaurants, and wear a mask. But, above all, listen to doctors and scientists, not politicians. Until next time, mahalo and aloha. This episode of Remarkable People is brought to you by Remarkable, the paper tablet company. This is Remarkable People.